0: We're going to be in Jeremiah chapter 16 and 17 tonight, continuing our study here through the book of Jeremiah. Lord willing, timely, we're going to get through verse 18 of uh, Jeremiah 17, so we won't finish up all of 17 here tonight. Um, Next week, when we get into 18, that's one of my favorite stories in Jeremiah about the potter and the clay, Uh, some wonderful passages in there, and I tell you, there's just some good stuff coming up here in Jeremiah. Now... You know, you that have been coming out to the study here for a while, you know how we've been talking about, about the first ten chapters of the book of Jeremiah is God laying the overall scene here. You know, Babylon is getting ready to judge Israel. It's the covenant. They made this covenant back in the book of Deuteronomy, which is a very simple covenant. You do what God says, God blesses you. You don't do what God says, the curses come on you. And part of the curses... Is this idea of judgment coming, famine coming, drought coming, and these are all the things that are coming? And I think we've said every week in our study here in Jeremiah, Jeremiah was a prophet for over 40 years, and as far as we know, there was not one person that ever really listened to what he had to say. And numerous times here in the book of Jeremiah, there's moments of Jeremiah pleading individually, saying, Lord, give me strength, Lord, help me through this. And we've talked about how we can relate to this, that there's times in our lives, in our ministry, Where it sure feels dry, it sure feels like no one's listening, and Lord, I'm not seeing any fruit in any way whatsoever, Jeremiah, and you can relate. With that being said, chapter 16 is kind of the same old, same old, and I don't mean to say that lightly that the sin will be judged. Chapter 17 gets into a little bit more background. Now, what we've been doing here with our study through the book of Jeremiah is we try to find our key verse. We find our key verse for each study, and then we can kind of come back and break that down. With that being said, before we jump into it, let's just pray here one more time. Lord, we just want to ask for your blessing just in the sanctuary here on this lesson. As always, Lord, your Spirit teach. We listen. And we say thank you for that. And Lord, also we just want to pray for everything going on in the back. CBC, nursery, their preschool, setting up for heart to heart. A lot of activity going on back there. We just pray for your blessing on that as well. In your name, amen. Key verses are found in verses 5 through 8 of Jeremiah 17. You see the black and white, the cursing and the blessing here. Verse 5 of Jeremiah 17. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart departs from the Lord. For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inhabit the parched places in the wilderness and a salt land which is not inhabited. Verse 7, Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its roots by the river, and will not fear when heat comes. But its leaf will be green, and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. Those are our key verses. We're going to come back to that. The simplicity of, Cursed is the man who is not following God. Verse 7, Blessed is the man who is following God. Let's just build that one more time. Cursed is the family who is not following God. Blessed is the family that is following God. You can even go a step further. Blessed is the nation that follows God. Cursed is the nation that does not. You see the simplicity of this. And this should not be a shock to anybody because in Deuteronomy it's laid out very clearly. You do what God says, you're blessed. You don't do what God says, problems are going to happen. This is not the mean God that lives upstairs. This is just a fact. You do things the way you're supposed to, things go better. You don't do things that you're supposed to do, things don't go good. That's the simplicity here of Jeremiah. Now, with that being said, let's just back up to chapter 16 real quick. Because chapter 16 is pretty straightforward, too. Verses 1 through 13, Israel is going to be judged. So much so, the sacrifices that Jeremiah have to make. Look at verse 1 real quick. The word of the Lord also came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. That's kind of tough. That's pretty tough. That's the ministry that Jeremiah was called. See, anytime we throw out the word ministry, you have to remember with ministry, it's just not all sunshine and roses. If you really want to serve God, you really want to make a difference in your family, at work, or whatever your sphere of influence is, there has to be a preparedness of making sacrifices, and there has to be a preparedness of difficulties in life. Now, my assumption, Jeremiah was probably like most men. He probably wanted to get a wife. He probably wanted to have a family. He probably wanted to be blessed in that area. God says, you can't do this. Now, before you think once again that this is God just being mean, the reason God is saying no is because of verse 3. For thus says the Lord, concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who beget them in this place, they shall die gruesome deaths. See, that's the thing. God knew what was coming. As we mentioned last week, when Babylon came down and attacked Israel, it was awful. We read some of the passages where the parents were eating their young, they were eating the placenta after birth. You know, the word we use for sadness is lament. Well, there's a book in the Bible called Lamentations, which is also written by Jeremiah, which is about the siege that happened on Israel. So what God is doing here, dare I say in a strange way, God's actually trying to protect Jeremiah. Don't, don't, don't take a wife. Don't have kids. Your ministry is Israel. Now, here's the thing. None of us will ever realize the sacrifices that are made for the body of Christ. You, you never will. You'll never know the sacrifices that are made on a Wednesday night. You know, I don't know where everything is going. For some of you, this may have been the hardest Wednesday ever to get here. No one may know. Thank you for making that sacrifice to come. The people serving in the back, they may have had a horrible day, and up until 6.45 at night, they thought, I don't know if I can go back there and serve and take care of 10 two-year-olds tonight. They're back there taking care of them. And I'm not implying they are, so please don't. I don't even know who's serving in that room. Don't think I know something going on. I'm breaking confidences or something. We just don't know the sacrifices Sometimes. And some of you in your marriage, you may be making sacrifices for your husband or your wife. They may not realize that. You may be making sacrifices for your kids. You may be making sacrifices for your co-workers. We don't know. Jeremiah made a sacrifice here. No wife, no kids. God says, I'm actually doing this to save you. To save you heartache and pain. And it goes on in verses 3 through 13. And it's horrible. There's just death and, and, and no mourning, no, no weeping. Look at verse 6. Both great and the small shall die in this land. They shall not be buried. They neither shall men lament for them, cut themselves, nor make themselves bald for them. No men shall make break bread in mourning for them to comfort them. Nor shall men give them cup of consolation to drink for their father or their mother. There's just going to be utter sadness and despair here when Babylon comes down. Now here's the problem that happens in the Bible. People go to Jeremiah 16, they read verses 1 through 13, and they say, that's the problem I have with God. That's why I don't like God. Gruesome deaths, lamentations, people are eating their kids, and and they just say, that's why I don't like God. Problem is they don't get the full context. They don't get the full context of the decades that God preached ...to Israel saying, repent. They don't get the deal, the covenant that was signed hundreds of years ago... ...where God says, this is what's going to happen. They ignore all that. And plus, they ignore verses 14 through 21. Because look at verses 14 through 21. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord... ...that it shall no more be said, the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt... ...but the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north, Babylon... And from all the lands which he has driven them. Look at verse 15. For I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. God says, I'm not giving up on them. But this is a discipline, a punishment that Israel has to go through. For breaking the covenant, turning their back on God, and giving up on the true God. He goes, I am going to punish them. I'm going to discipline them. To have them come back. Somebody asked a great question last week saying, did it work? And as far as we know from studying the Bible, once Israel was taken over by Babylon and sent into captivity and brought back, we don't see them falling into idolatry. Yes, this was a pretty hard spanking, but it got their attention. God's judgment worked. So you can look at the first 13 verses of Jeremiah 16 and say, that's why I don't like God. Or you could look at the entire chapter of Jeremiah 16 and realize one of the most loving things God could ever do for us sometimes is discipline us to get our attention. That's actually a strange way to look at love, but that is what love is. So that's the quick summary of Jeremiah 16. We've covered that point before a couple of times, so I don't want to spend a lot of time on it. I want to get to more of Jeremiah 17 and realize what Jeremiah was going through. But before we get to that, anybody got any quick questions, comments on chapter 16, the judgment that Israel was going to go through, but yet still the grace and mercy that God gave them. Remember, anytime you see judgment in the Bible, what do you always see? Grace and mercy. Always. Okay, with that being said... Jeremiah 17 starts out here pretty solid. Verse 1, The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with the point of a diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of your heart and on the horns of your altars. We have a phrase in our uh, English society here of something being set in stone. Well, that's what God is saying here. Judah's sin, Israel's sin, is set in stone. It is. So this sin is there. It has to be judged. It has to be punished. Now, before you sit there and say, This isn't fair... How is God able to know this? Jump ahead to verse 9 of Jeremiah 17. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. Before we sit here and say this isn't fair, this actually is very fair. The judicial system that we have today consists generally of a judge... And a group of jurors, or sometimes three judges, that sit there, listen to one man or woman give their case, then the other man or woman give their case. This is why this person's innocent. No, this is why this person is guilty. And then they have to sit there and weed through all the facts, all the falsities, and then make an informed decision over two cases that are presented to them by sinful people. And sometimes that verdict is literally life or death. Let's just be honest, it's the best system that we can come up with, with flawed, sinful people. God's system, in verses 9 through 10, there is no flaw in that system in any way whatsoever. When God says the person is guilty, our answer is not, well, how do you know that? We know that. Why? Look at verse 9, rhetorical question. Who can know it? Verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart, I test the mind. We had a sermon recently, and I can't remember if it was a Sunday or a Wednesday, where we brought up the phrase that um, we, we say in our language, know my heart. You know, know my heart that I didn't mean to hurt your feelings, or I know in my heart that I really wanted to do what's right. We want to believe that, but according to the Bible, the heart, verse 9, is deceitfully wicked. So in my heart, I may believe my motives are pure. In my heart, I may believe my motives are good. God sometimes can look through my falsities in my heart and say, James, there's a wickedness in your heart that needs to be dealt with. And that's the Holy Spirit's job, to get in there and dig and dig and dig. I tell you, it's hard. It is hard. We talk to a lot of people at her church... And when you sit down with them and you look at them in the eye in counseling and you hear the promises of, I'm going to be a better father. I'm going to be a better dad. I'm not going to go home and do that stuff anymore. This is a changing point in my life. Pastor, I promise you, this is it. Boy, you want to believe them. You do. But then you look at Jeremiah 17, 9 and 10 and you say, Lord, you're the only one that knows. So God is saying, the reason I can judge Israel Because I'm the one that knows. I know the depths of their sin. I know the depths of their evilness. And I know this is the only way to get their attention. Once again, as we look at judgment, it's easy to get mad. But in the midst of judgment, there's always the cry for help. Look at Jeremiah's heart in Jeremiah 17, verse 14. Jeremiah is pleading with the Lord, and I'm assuming with the people here, of Lord Help us. Look at verse 14. Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me, and I shall be saved, for you are my praise. Indeed, they said to me, where is the word of the Lord? Let it come now. And as for me, I have not hurried away from being a shepherd who follows you, nor have I desired the woeful day. You know what came out of my lips. It was right there before you. Do not be a terror to me. You are my hope in the day of doom. I love verse 17. That's now become my favorite verse here for the week. I, I, that's one of those I'm going to put on my fridge. God is my hope in the day of doom. Now, just think about that for a second. How many of you have had a day of doom recently? I've had a week of doom, a month of doom. Some of you may be in a year of doom. You may be in a decade of doom. You may call your whole life doom. I don't know. God is your hope in the day of doom. Now, before you think, yeah, now stop for a second. I don't know what you're facing. It does not compare to women eating their placentas and babies in Babylon wanting to destroy you. I'm not trying to make light of the atrocities that happened in the book of Jeremiah or in Lamentations. But our day of doom in our 21st century is usually, i got a flat tire or something like that. That's not a day of doom. That's a day of hardship. That's a day of annoyance. Days of doom. God is your hope. So if God is their hope, with Babylon breathing down their neck to destroy them... I bet you whatever we're facing here, in little old Northwest Ohio, God says, I can handle that. I can handle that. If you're in a tough time right now, you need verse 17. You are my hope in the day of doom. Boy, isn't that a beautiful verse to think about. And that's what Jeremiah is reminding himself with judgment coming. God, you're there. Boy, that's encouraging. Now, I want to get back to verses 5 through 8. I want to spend a little bit of time on our key verses here. But before we get to that, does anybody have any quick questions, comments, about anything that we've covered here thus far? Ryan. What you say about people saying, this is the reason they have a problem with God, or sort of cherry-picking the verses, it's, it's really a little really bit on their books, because they're reading part of the chapter, but not the rest of the chapter. You're just to mention the for the grace and mercy act. I agree. But read, read four more verses, you see maybe it's a different side of this picture. I, I, I agree with you it's a wonderful point you just made there, Ryan, and that's part of the beauty of getting the full text context of God's Word. And I know I say this a lot, and I don't say this as a a holier-than-thou or, you know, we're a better church. I don't mean that at all. But that's one of the things I love about Harvest when I first started coming out here 20 years ago is that verse-by-verse teaching, is you get the full context of that chapter. Because it would be really easy to go to uh, Jeremiah 17 and just pick out a verse like, You know, you are my hope in the day of doom. That's a great verse. But until you know the full context of what Jeremiah is talking about, you don't get it. Or like you said too, Ryan, someone can go pick out verses 1 through 13 of chapter 16 and say, this is why I hate God. Get the full context of it before you see it. It's always important to get the context of the passage before we jump to any conclusions. Anybody else got any other quick questions, comments here before we move on? Now, I love verses 5 through 8 because it's such a simple black-white thing. Verses 5 and 6, cursings. Verses 7 and 8, blessings. Now, I just want to spend a little bit of time with this. We've got about 5-10 minutes left here and I just want to talk about this a little bit. Look at verse 5 one more time. Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. How simple is that statement? If you are trusting in mankind for deliverance, hope, peace, encouragement, you're going to utterly be disappointed. We say out here a lot that people come in and they'll make a comment. Oh, I'm really disappointed. Why? My wife let me down. My husband let me down. My best friend let me down. Well, of course they let you down. They're man. They're sinful. They're deceitful. They're wicked. Didn't we just read that verse? I love Dawn more than anybody in this world, but I also understand the fact she's going to let me down. And the same thing to her. I'm going to let her down. My trust is not in man. Man. My trust is in God and God alone. Quick verse to put with that, you don't need to turn there. Psalm 118.8. Psalm 118.8. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Love that verse. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Our hope in the day of doom is God, it's not in man, and makes flesh his strength. This idea of getting strength from the flesh. If man is deceitfully wicked, then there is no strength in man in any way whatsoever. There is no person that's going to be able to fix your problems and help you through things. Psalm 73:26, Psalm 73:26 says, "My flesh and my heart failed, but God is the strength of my heart." God's the strength of my heart. Mankind, their brothers and sisters in Christ can uplift you and encourage you through the scripture, through prayer. But if you're putting your foundation on another person, there's going to be an utter disappointment in life. There just is. And what we see here in these passages is when you trust your strength, when you trust man, verse 6, you're like a dried out shrub in the desert. Nothing. Now, I hear it. And I hear it from fairly mature believers. You talk to them a little bit and they're going through a tough time. And they're like, you know, I know I'm going through a tough time, but you know what? I just need to buck up a little bit. I just need to get back on track and I'll be fine. You don't have the strength to get back on track. You don't have the strength to buck up. You know what I need to do? I just need to get my mind focused where it's supposed to be and I'll be okay. I'll be good. No, you're not. You're trusting in yourself. You may have to reach a point of complete brokenness where you say, Lord, I can't do this on my own. I can't do anything on my own. And I'm trusting in my flesh, my strength. Forgive me. See, that's what verse 5 is telling you. If you trust in man or trust in your own strength, what happens Your heart departs from the Lord. Boy, you just start forgetting about God and you go on your own. Where's the blessing come, though? Look at verse 7. Look at the difference between verse 5 and verse 7. Verse 5, cursed is the man who trusts in man. Verse 7, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Trusting in God. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord. Verse 7 Whose hope is in the Lord, for he is like a tree planted by the waters, who spreads out its roots by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf will be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. I always like to sum up verse 8 very simply There's no fear, no worry. Wouldn't you like to have a life on this earth with no fear and no worry? I am so tired of worrying and being fearful for things. I I just hate it. You know, there's this part of me where you know, anytime Dawn has to go someplace with the kids, we got this little rule where if any of us has one kid or all five of the kids, we take off. When we get there, we just send them a quick text back saying, here. Now, I trust the Lord, but if she ever takes off with some of the kids and she's gone driving for 15, 20 minutes, there's always a part of me that's like, I'm just waiting for that text to say I'm here. Because why? There's worry. There's fear. And as much as we try to say as Christians, oh, don't get worked up, don't get be afraid, I have never met a Christian who can't worry. I can't. I've never. I've never met a Christian who does not experience fear. And if you're the one to come and tell me, oh, I don't have fear, I don't have worry, I would just call you a liar right now and say the fires of hell are leaping at your feet. Because you're lying. You have fear. You have worry. Now, you may be a tough man, Christian, that doesn't want to admit it, but you do. If if fear and worry was not such a big deal, why would in verse 8 God have to tell us, Don't be anxious because there's fear and worry. Hi. Okay. See, you're making me fear and worried. I didn't know what you were doing there. Fear and worry. And if God has to constantly keep telling us not be afraid, if he has to constantly keep telling us not be worried, why does he do that? Because he knows that we're going to do it. Just really quick ask yourself, are you in verse 5 and 6 or are you in verses 7 and 8? If you're trusting in man and you're trusting in your own strength and your own flesh, you're over in verses 5 and 6. You're cursed. You have no joy. You have no peace. Now, if you're in verses 7 and 8, yeah, you're like the tree planted by the waters. And what we're going to finish with here real quick is go to Psalm 1. Because Psalm 1, basically Jeremiah must have read Psalm 1 and through the Spirit said, you know what, I just want to repeat everything that Psalm 1 said. Because verses 7 and 8 is basically Psalm 1. I think I've mentioned to you before, of all the psalms in the Bible, all 150 of them, Psalm 1 is my favorite. So simple, so straightforward, you can't miss it. Verse 1, Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Verse 2, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates day and night. Point number 1, if you want to have joy and delight in your life, be in the Word. As you're in the Word, you have hope, you have strength, you have peace. If you have time tonight, and if you don't have time, I encourage you to make this part of your devotional. Psalm 119. Wonderful psalm, and it breaks down the Word of God, according to the Hebrew alphabet, and you'll see every blessing that comes from being in the Word. Every now and then I'll have somebody come to me that's struggling with something, and I'll give them some verses, and they'll say, well, why would I read this? What good is it going to do? That's the beauty of God's Word. When you get in the Word, and you pray over it, and you meditate over it, it brings you peace. Verse 3, we basically just read this. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bring forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. I see Christians, myself included sometimes, that wither under the face of adversity. The worries and stresses of this world wither them up. Why? Because they're not planted by the rivers of water. God's Word, time with Him, spending it in prayer and fellowship, They get withered up. Jeremiah, who is facing a very, very difficult situation, realized, plant yourself in God and you'll be blessed. Simple concept. And whatever difficulty you're facing there today, if you plant yourself in God, you will be blessed. He is your hope in the day of doom. He is your hope in the Lord. And if you trust in him, the Bible says you're blessed. Whatever you're facing, give it to Him and allow Him to do the heavy lifting. And boy, walk in peace. Walk in peace. So we'll finish up Jeremiah 17 next week. We'll hopefully get into chapter 18. There's some too. Does anybody have any final questions, comments here about anything before we uh, close up with a word of prayer? Alrighty, Um, we're going to close with a word of prayer, but if you've got a few minutes to help us afterwards, we'd like to put the chairs back together like we normally do on Sundays. And uh, if you don't mind helping with that a little bit, we would appreciate that. So let's pray, and then we'll let you go. Heavenly Father, we are thankful for just the time to be here. Thankful, Lord, for your hope in the day of doom. Thankful for your trust during difficult times. And if there's someone here tonight or someone listening to this online that is struggling with something, I pray that you're giving them hope and peace in the difficult time as they turn to you. We lift this up in your name. Amen. All right, you guys have a good week, and God bless.